Hello, I'm Jake Thorne, back with another edition of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. So much of what we have covered on this podcast has been on animal management at the production level, uh, but today we are going to step outside of that box. Once lambs leave the farm, there are a multitude of other steps that occur before a product ever finds its way to the plate of a consumer. With that said, what we perceive as high-quality lambs live may or may not translate to a high-quality carcass or even individual cuts. Luckily, with me today is someone that can help us better understand the nuances of lamb quality post-harvest. Dr. Travis Hoffman, who is the Sheep Extension Specialist for North Dakota State University and the University of Minnesota, has spent many hours in the cooler in a professional capacity and has studied many of the factors that affect carcass value. Dr. Hoffman, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Absolutely excited to join you, Jake. Thanks. So, Dr. Hoffman, uh, I gave a pretty brief introduction there. Uh, would you mind giving us some further background on yourself and your current role at NDSU and UM? Again, thanks for including me. So, my name is Travis Hoffman, as he said. I, I grew up on a diversified livestock operation in South Dakota. Uh, from a sheep standpoint, uh, my family has registered Cordale sheep, and then we also had cattle and small grains primarily. I went to South Dakota State University and completed a bachelor's degree and went to Colorado State University and during there from academically worked on a master's program uh, with a focus uh, on the master's on sheep safety and quality assurance program. And so the overarching outreach that we can do from an education standpoint on how we impact our end product, and then a PhD uh, that focused on our national lamb quality audit, and so more so of how we could be understanding of retailers, food service purveyors, and also consumers as well. And so I've had that opportunity, but what I recall, uh, Jake, is, you know, even as a uh, a junior high member or, or high schooler and, and being involved in 4-H and FFA of something that's always intrigued me, and when I guess uh, when I wrote some of those scholarship applications of what do you want to be when you grow up, uh, I've always wanted to look at the differences in value of the sheep industry and of, of lamb. And so this is really exciting to me as we kind of think of that and of how our production management and the decisions that we make have an impact on, first off, uh, the cutability and the quality of the lamb that is then merchandised to our consumers. And so big picture, I'd like to challenge everybody uh, to kind of think uh, holistically of the scheme and that uh, our sheep and lamb industry isn't over until it's consumed by somebody at the back end uh, uh, of our supply chain. We're going to circle back to to your work on the lamb quality audit in here just in a minute. But uh, I do want to back up and, and ask you, uh, you know, you talked about your 4-H days and high school days, but how did you become involved in, in meat science and, and specifically interested in lamb quality. Certainly. And so as as an undergraduate there in, uh, in college and went through some of the judging programs, and I was given the opportunity to be on a meats judging program at South Dakota State University and then uh, the, the livestock judging program. And I think drawing some of those past experiences of saying, and, and thinking about it, I guess, uh, from a seed stock standpoint as well, you know, and 
We have lots of people at different parts of our industry, Jake. But you know, even from a seed stock standpoint, is okay. We know that you know animal A is worth more than animal B, and that's a genetic uh, management and selection standpoint. But a lot of the times, when we think of that, and again through the whole supply chain, is that you know once we get if we were to take them to a feed yard in our traditional market system, is that there's animals that are better in terms of feed efficiency or better in terms of gain. And I know that I have other academics and other people in our industry that took the focus on that. And so I, I kind of wanted to dig on meat science and, and again, what we can do uh, that has an impact on the value. And so when you see that, and I always welcome any sheep producer that we have to, to be as connected as you can on whether that's with the local processor of if you so choose to direct market your own lambs, uh, that I'm getting pulled into a lot of our programs and projects in NDSU and the University of Minnesota Extension, or if you are part of our supply chain uh, that offers those up to some of our more commercial processing plants and getting that data back allows us the opportunity to make improvements uh, and to uh, to determine, is this what we want to do? And of course, there's lots of focuses and lots of yeah. breeds in our game. And so oh, that yeah. makes it a, an advantage and a disadvantage. But I think that there's a big parts that impact value. And so from now on, for the rest of our podcast, I'd like to challenge our listeners uh, to think of it and our whole supply chain from the consumer level. And that's why I do what I do, is I believe that uh, the American lamb industry provides a positive eating experience, okay? And so yeah. I like to think of it as, you know, if uh, if you have your 10-year wedding anniversary, your 30-year anniversary, whatever that may be, and if you go to the local steakhouse and you decide to purchase uh, lamb loin chops or, or rack or whatever that may be, uh, that's a great opportunity. And at that point, we are providing not only just eating satisfaction, but improving people's lives. And so I like to think of a lot of things from a consumer standpoint. And so beginning with the end in mind is, is my theme uh, for today's podcast. And I guess a, a theme for my life and career right now. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, that's really neat to hear. So uh, I'd like to start with a pretty broad question. Can you provide us with your definition of lamb quality? And what factors uh, are, go into carcass value and, and what actually affects quality of, of lamb cuts? Thank you. And so in my personal opinion, uh, there's just going to be a little bit of, of counterintuitive approach here because one of the things that I said uh, in terms of our U.S. sheep industry is that we have a broad diversity of breeds and we have a broad diversity of production methods and then that results in a broad uh, quality and yield yeah. traits of our lamb. And so big picture, this is how I describe quality. And this goes back to uh, philosophically to W. Edwards Deming and total quality management. But we can say, does McDonald's provide quality? Okay, and so and the answer is yes, because you know what you're going to get and you right. know what it is and you know whether it's consistent or not. Now, it's not the highest end steak that you preferred, but providing a consistent product, then we know and then we can make that value proposition of are you willing to pay extra for that? And so even if we think of and compare that to the Wagyu burger, okay, are you willing to pay now $15 for that burger? And some, the answer is yes, but 
fitting that consistent product. And so one of the things is we describe eating satisfaction. We'll dig on that here uh, at a little bit later, uh, just in terms of just generalization of eating satisfaction. But can we provide a consistent product of what those consumers want and what they are expecting? So when carcasses are, are in the plant, they're going to be graded, uh, quality and, and yield grade. How is that determined in, in lamb? And, and is that consistent with other livestock or is it a little bit different? Well, I think it's important to consider that uh, the sheep and lamb grading system is simply that, is that that we have control and that is information that was most recently, and again, we can determine where this is at, but it was most recently upgraded, Jake, in 1992 and commonly from research that was conducted in 1970s, okay, in 1970 and 72 of two main research projects. And so there's their opportunity to make some revisions to that, and I think the answer to that is yes. But let me give the guidance in terms of what we have right now. In relation to USDA quality grade, our job with quality grade is to define palatability expectations, okay? What can we do that has an impact on the eating satisfaction uh, for our consumers? The first thing that's in consideration as it relates to USDA quality grade is age and or maturity. Right now, as written, um, animals and and those carcasses, as they are fabricated and and go through the processing chain, there is a joint at the front leg, um, you know, near the hoof, okay, so that is can be a break joint or a spool joint. And as an animal matures, uh, that break joint changes to a spool joint. And so in order for it to be considered lamb and to be preferably marketed in the USDA Prime and USDA Choice categories, it needs to be young enough at the break joint. Also, commonly those animals can be um, considered lamb through USDA FSIS labeling if there's the non-eruption of the permanent incisors, so if they still have all of their lamb teeth, if that break joint occurs or if they're under 14 months of age. And at least from our National Lamb Quality Audit, uh, that was one thing that was very important as we describe lamb is that a lot of people want that to be young sheep, and, and there are differences for that. But once we make that maturity designation, then there's two other things on quality grade. Quality grade then is attributed to overall muscle conformation, and it can be from high prime, meat, average prime, low prime, and through choice, and then down uh, as well based on conformation, and then flank streaking. Now, flank streaking isn't always the answer, and in fact, the the correlation, like I said, was from 1970 and 72, um, but that's an indication of how much intramuscular fat there will be, how juicy, how tender, and, and how... Um, flavorful that product will be. And so I think that there's room and just big picture on quality grading. Uh, first off, Jake, uh, f- to interpret this because we have more information. Uh, our lambs are very different than what they were um, 50 years ago. And so uh, there's some great research that can and is being done in flavor profile, how we can improve, continue to improve tenderness and make that big picture on a, a quality grade. And so um, I think that that's important to to first consider and if you were interested we can talk just a little bit about yield grade as well yeah sure absolutely and so yield grade is a little easier certainly quite a bit easier at least in the processing plants and so usda yield grade uh in terms of the equation is the back fat 
measurement at the 12th rib or the 12th and 13th rib interface. So where you would rib or cut that carcass in half longitudinally um, and you will see then again the rack chops or the rack uh, more towards the front quarter and the loin and the loin chops in the rear quarter. And so at that location over the ribeye or loin eye you take a measurement. So it's that measurement of back fat times 10 plus 0.4. Okay and so big picture if we were to have two tenths of back fat Times 10 gets us to 2.0 plus 0.4 gets us to 2.4. And that's a numerical yield grade then of yield grade 2. One of the interesting things that probably not everybody is aware of is that in order to have USDA grading accomplished is that those need to be in tandem of quality grade and yield grade need to be administered at the same time. Now we're seeing less and less of the lambs that go through our commercial plants uh, being graded and so some people can so choose you know if it's a branded program or a local option you don't need to have that because those producers would have to pay for that inspection is free okay and that's covered by our united states government and the department of agriculture the usda agriculture marketing service uh, administers those quality and yield grades and so that comes with a cost and so you have to be a relatively sizable operation um, but that differentiates again potential eating experience and then from a yield grade standpoint cutability and cutability is certainly one thing that also has an impact on the overall quality and, and value just in generalities of, of our sheep carcasses. I'd like to ask you if you could kind of walk us through the production chain of lamb from from farm to to fork so to speak and talk about what can happen at each of these stages uh, that impacts the the quality of the end product that ultimately ends up on the plate of the consumer thanks for the uh large generalized question we'll kind of dig yeah. through it as best that we can uh, jake i appreciate that and so big picture uh let's uh think of things that we have control of first and so uh i when I think of, of even the, the dinner plate, okay, and there's so many decisions that happened throughout that animal's life um, that hopefully were with intentionality, and then things that happened even when we made those mating decisions and how we moved through the production system. So big picture, when we think uh, breed can and, and does have an impact for the most part, uh, that's the last thing that, Jake, I want to do is to tell you to uh, to choose a breed because uh, everybody has their own breed and they have their own breed for a reason um, and they've made those decisions. Um, but uh, when you keep that decision on breed, there can be impacts um, from how much big picture, uh, from a carcass merit standpoint, how much muscularity, how much trimness, where are we at in terms of the percentage of terminal focus and so when we have lambs that come from a maternal breed those are not going to be the ones that excel in producing the largest loin chops and that's okay because their job is is elsewhere within our production system a lot of the times and i'll use probably from now on as this discussion is that the most common spot for our traditional lamb market uh, would be a you know a black face ram on a white face you if we're different than uh, our our hair sheep subset of the population um, but so we have a speckled face lamb is there differences then in gender of those animals and for the most part uh, that's a little bit negligible 
but if we get to intact males and we take them past the point of puberty, uh, then we can increase the flavor profile ever so slightly as well. There's differences in terms of diet. And again, uh, Jake, I know that you join us obviously from Texas and that's your background. Um, but um, I think that the easiest analogy to think of this, and not right or wrong, um, but but deer that are raised in uh, in Texas do not taste the same as deer that are playing in the cornfields of Iowa. All right? And yep. so they, they can be 100% genetically similar. Um, but it doesn't matter because diet does change that. From an entertaining sure. side, uh, you know what you what the animal consumes in terms of diet has an impact on branch chain fatty acids. And again, we don't want to go too in depth on that. And I'm the one that gets to study that. And if people have more questions, I'd I'd love to talk through it. But if you have more legumes, okay, if you produce uh, more of an alfalfa or clover as a larger part of their diet, uh, that's going to change the eating profile as well. Um, and so some of the diet has an impact. And making sure that those animals get to a marketable weight and marketable size. And in fact, if I was to pick anything in here, since you gave me the whole supply chain, to me, that's the most important part. Okay, is getting those animals, no matter what their size is, what their nutrition, what their age is, uh, if those are animals that can be harvested, preferably at where their physiological endpoint is, and for you know some of those hair sheep, you know that's about a hundred pounds, 110 might max out on some of those. Um, for the the polypay uh, cross sheep that would come out of more intensive range spots in the here in the Midwest or Great Lakes region, you know what. 130 is probably enough for them uh, in terms of pounds of live weight. Some of the big uh, sheep that we get out of the mountains of Idaho, Utah, uh, Montana, you know, those are coming out of Columbia, Rambouillet, uh, used, and then using a growth sire on them, you know, and those can easily go to 150. They can go to 160, 170, but we want to get those close to two tenths to three tenths of back fat. If we're under a tenth or under 15 hundredths, um, we're going to have differences in terms of carcass chilling, um, shrink of those lamb carcasses. And so we'd preferably like to get to two tenths of back fat. But the difference is, is as we think about it from our supply chain, is that commonly we could get just a little bit farther than maybe what we would like um, from there. And so big picture, then do we have uh, impacts on chilling and aging and cooking methods and a d different philosophies on how you would cook different cuts uh, and retail usage, certainly we do. And so uh, once that leaves the processing plant, yeah, we've done what we can. And so when I provide information and work with producers, you know, the next kind of discussion that I, I have is is uh, that we have a dartboard and with that target, uh, it's identifying what our target is. And so we have opportunity to impact um, lamb eating satisfaction and lamb cutability on the decisions that we make based on breed, management, diet, uh, age, genders of those uh, and what we can do. And so uh, hopefully we can make those decisions. And truthfully, like I said, to kind of summarize that, let's market those at the right weight uh, that fits what provides us the most commercial flexibility. And so if those carcasses come in at 65, 75, 85 pounds, um, then that allows a lot of flexibility because those can be cut into uh, 
retail cuts that can go to the grocery store. They can also be then on the heavier end, you know, cut into the loin, full loins or loin chops at one and a quarter and uh, be uh, the center of plate of a Morton's. And so we can make sure that we have American lamb at the highest end white tablecloth restaurants to also providing those at retail for our mid-level and for people that want to take lamb home and be creative with it and again that's a different story but uh i know that we have a a lot of excitement in the lamb industry and again the uh the food network and the cooking channel those are uh this generation's rock stars there you go well i want to come back to your point on uh, harvesting lambs at at an ideal physiological endpoint or, or weight essentially what happens when lambs get too big and how does that detract from carcass value so thanks. I think those uh, lambs that uh, that get maybe just a little bit larger than we prefer on on compositional endpoint. I think there's some still some salvageable things that that can be uh, helpful for our game. And the first thing is is that as animals age, we increase the amount of muscle. All right, and so those that are larger, we can have larger loin eye areas and larger rib eye areas. But that's one of the things where we have the advantage over our competitors of Australia and New Zealand is that we can put one loin chop out there or two um, just rack chops. And so our research from our lamb quality audit said that U.S. middle meats are larger. Now, the challenge is, as we think about it from physiologically, is that animals or any uh, particular living uh, animal there is is only going to grow so tall and only going to grow so long and and then only going to grow so much muscularity and so right or wrong i kind of think of this from just uh as as the animal develops is that they're going to grow taller right and then you go through middle school and then they're going to grow um with more muscle and once you reach that top okay and no matter how much i think that i'm going to get taller i dare to think that that's going to happen right and so, uh, and in fact, in terms of the amount of muscularity, that stalls out as well. The last thing that gets put on physiologically, and we're well aware of this, uh, is adipose tissue or fat. And that's where the challenge comes from uh, when we think about our sheep and lamb industry is that the last thing that's put on uh, is fat. And then, then we get external fat that will be on those carcasses. And yes, some say that, you know, that can be taken off, but that costs time at the processing plant. And you can only take so much off. Now, when we talk about it, even if we get that trimmed, there's going to be certain cuts where there's intermuscular fat or that fat between the muscles. And so one of the things that I've kind of think in terms of just detracting from the overall appearance, first off, and the marketability is the front shoulder. And so when we think of the front shoulder, uh, there's so many seams uh, between those muscles that when we, uh, when we, get those lambs a little bit heavier than they need and to get a little bit chubbier than they need is that there becomes a lot or intermuscular fat there and so that becomes a little bit more of a challenge like if we were to put that in the grill and not saying that we would um because that would not be the place but then we can get flare-ups and that can cause challenges and so it just allows us less flexibility because now we got to braise that in the pan uh, for a long time and we're going to have less product yield so for every three pounds of uh, lamb shoulder that we purchase uh, we're going to have more waste as well and so big picture i think that visual appearance um, is critically important and that's what some of our information said in describing um, our products and so when we think about it from products um, i said eating satisfaction was number one and the lamb flavor and taste was 
was most important. But when we talk about it, at least from our national lamb quality audit, on product appearance and composition, that there's two things that were important, fresh lamb color and then the fat trim level. And so keeping that trim and available for our people, and then if we can keep it consistent, because if we get too many different sizes on um, on lighter lambs and or heavier lambs, and a good thing is is that, Again, we can sell all of those lambs, and that's a bonus. And I know that some detractors might say, you know, the best thing about the sheep industry is that we can sell the light ones and we can sell the heavy ones. But we don't have to. If we could provide a consistent product, then we would be able to have at least that idea in in relation to our competitors, particularly of Australia and New Zealand, but now realize that, again, that uh, the United Kingdom and we have other people that want to play in the United States market as well now. You, you talked about there's been some research in the area of evaluating eating quality in lambs. Sure, and it's an exciting thing, and I'd like to particularly give credit, at least within our American system, is that the American Lamb Board and the, the checkoff dollar that, that has been um, pulled uh, and, and pointed towards some of the promotion uh, of our products has went to some of the research. And so a large part that had previously been done at Colorado State University and then now in collaboration with the University of Wyoming and, and Texas Tech University is looking at flavor profiles. And so, again, I said that we have the opportunity to to now, if we so aspired, uh, to sort lambs uh, as once we could think of Uh, much like coffee of mild, medium, and bold in terms of flavor. And interestingly, as we think of flavor, and a lot of the research, when we determine of saying what is right, uh, Jake, that's a tough question. And in fact, um, what I would describe there, um, and again, the reason that I'm talking about flavor is, again, our research uh, saying eating satisfaction is important and that flavor is the driver of that, partly because lamb for the most part, is tender. And so um, when we talk about flavor profiles, um, we can be able to have that impact in just discussion. But entry level, if I was to describe that, and most people are, okay, is that most people do not consume large levels of lamb, okay? We would like to think so. um, But, you know, when our per capita consumption number is hovering around one pound per person per year, uh, which at least we've passed that. So we're making we're making tremendous headway in progress. So don't kid yourself. Um, I've, I've passed my one pound per right. year already easily. Yep. You're, you're past <laughs> your one pound. But those that are more naive consumers is what I would describe, is that those people would prefer just a milder or more medium flavor of lamb. And so those that consume, then this is in generalization, don't get me wrong, um, sure. but those that consider lamb as the largest part of their diet, and I certainly work with lots of individuals that uh, that do, um, when they do that, sometimes they want just a little bit more pungent or stronger flavor. And so there's options uh, in re- relation to particularly flavor intensity, and that's what we can um, primarily measure or at least have that opportunity. Some research that, of course, has been previously done, uh, truthfully, nearly a decade ago now, um, was looking at the augmented grading in our vision uh, image system, and and certainly that's been uh, in and up at the uh, 
um, superior farms in Dixon, California, and, and hopefully, you know, we have the potential to include that for our industry as well. And that provides information. And I think the big picture when we think about this, whether it's collecting carcass information on back fat, ribeye, or looking at, again, further along the chain, is what information can we get back to producers? If it dies along the chain, and I say that as our supply chain of the information, then that doesn't help us make the decisions that, that maybe we want uh, to, to make. But again, we do have some research that primarily is saying um, that we can have an impact on flavor. The difference is, and I have to be careful on this, and as we think about this from an industry, is that there needs to be um, hopefully buy-in across the supply chain. And when, the, when you know we saw a shift from you know, leaner hogs and then now back to quality and to bacon and belly thickness. And we think about it from beef cattle is that when they made a decision that intramuscular fat was a reason for improved flavor and eating satisfaction in beef cattle, they put a reward on it. And so when you put a reward on it and make value-based marketing a large part of your production system, people make those decisions for that right jake and so again maybe uh i i'm I'm super optimistic i love our industry i love the sheep world i love lamb uh, as well and so i think that it takes all those and those that are rewarded that produce a product that has more flexibility has more consistency in terms of market expectations and meets what consumers would want if and when that becomes of more value um, then those decisions will be made along the chain so for your, your PhD, you mentioned that uh, the lamb quality audit was a major component. Can you kind of talk to us about what the lamb quality audit is and, and what you found back in, in 2015 and, and how all that works? Good. Thank you. So I've, I've touched on it potentially uh, uh, enough already, but uh, the first thing, um, Jake, uh, that we identified is that the reason that people purchase lamb is because of flavor. And the reason that people don't purchase lamb is because of flavor, okay? And so uh, that was one of the first things that we identified. And so that's why so much of that particular research kind of looked at um, how we have an impact on eating satisfaction. Eating satisfaction was the primary reason that people purchase lamb. And I'll tell you what the other ones were of origin, sheep raising practices, product appearance and composition, weight and size, nutrition and wholesomeness, and product convenience or form. And so the eating satisfaction was the reason. One of the other things is in that this follows with a lot of the local movement is that I thought origin was going to mean American. And according to 44% of our surveyed individuals, it meant locally raised. And, uh, you know, the more that we see that a farmer's market, and in fact, uh, again, I'm home base is Fargo, uh, North Dakota, America, all right? And so... With that, a lot of people are working with me either in North Dakota or Minnesota and saying, how can we develop um, our and take our lambs to a state-inspected, preferably, or USDA-inspected processing plant and be able to merchandise those lambs? The other things are is that sheep raising practices is important, um, but it's not often on the label yet, right, of grass-fed or humanely raised um, or even the feeding. And so one of the things, even as we think about sheep raising practices, and and I'll just kind of transition to the next one, is that 2022, right now, uh, Colorado State University is leading uh, a national lamb quality audit. And one of the things that we've 
that they've included is that sustainability is important as well. And so will that come up higher on the thoughts of our consumers? Uh, I touched on product appearance and composition. That's fresh lamb color and fat trim level. Consistency was, uh, was the win and the requirements on weight and size healthy nutrition, and truthfully, um, right or wrong, availability on product convenience. Because a lot of places, lamb isn't there. And even when we think about it as American sheep producers, Jake, a lot of times American lamb isn't there either. And so some of the, even if there is availability in terms of lamb, um, some of the times it's Australia or New Zealand, and, and that's taken some of our market share, at least in our traditional uh, lamb market, and of course, there's you know certainly some in terms of the um, you know non-traditional sure. as well that we can touch on. So that lamb quality audit that uh, you were a part of was in 2015, and you talked about another one that's underway right now. How do you think the American lamb consumer has changed? Uh, do you have any speculations on uh, if answers will be different this time around? Certainly. So I still think that um, when when we big picture what has the impact. Uh, uh, it is that flavor profile or eating satisfaction and generalities. If it's conducted and kind of compared some of those, uh, I think that that would, for the most part, see similarities. One of the things uh, that our consumer, and, and we asked this, in fact, uh, again, now a, a solid seven years ago, is what price would be too high um, for some of our cuts? And so from a rack and loins, you know, those were fifteen ninety nine to eighteen ninety nine, as they said, you know, I'm out. Um, but we now know that there has been certainly inflation at the grocery store, right? And uh, I think, uh, again, not from a, a political standpoint, but inflation is absolutely real. Um, and so you could pick whatever widget that is, is it costs more than what it did uh, a couple of years ago. And, and I think lamb is part of that. Now, I will tell you um, that with our consumer, and again, that's why I told you to, to leave the – not leave the production side, but to shift your brain focus from everything that we think about as consumer driven uh, in our, our session is that um, we have a tremendous group of individuals that want to consume lamb. And when we had a pandemic uh, with a coronavirus 19 is that some people certainly went to the store and they obviously didn't have the chance to go out. And so people brought lamb home. People made lamb and made different dishes and so the more creativity and again jake i you know sneak into the millennial crowd and i know obviously you're in there as well um but you know millennials don't want sloppy joes or just a, a pork chop on wednesdays okay the more creativity that we can do with whatever is in our fridge or comes from the grocery store the more i feel enabled like man that was a success Okay, and so lamb is totally part of that. That's why I love the cooking shows, the Food Network, um, and and just that demographic has changed. Now we have to be careful that we don't price ourselves out of their budget. Okay, and so again, this is more than just the quality audit. This is just lamb in general. Is that we don't want to price ourselves out of the budget uh, of our are new consumers uh, that want to dig and want to include it into right. their lifestyle. So the non-traditional market, a lot of what you've, you've talked about is, is probably more centered on traditional market. Uh, the non-traditional market is a growing sector. How is lamb quality different for yes, those smaller, lighter lambs versus, you know, the traditional 150, 160 pounders? Thanks. And so big picture again, it's about endpoint, right? And so, 
uh, when when I think and look at a lamb that that goes into the non traditional market, uh, I would say and, and again taking and pulling control of what we have control of is most likely frame size. Okay, uh, Jake, and so you know if you have a large white face breed uh, that is larger framed and you want to send lambs into non traditional market at 70 to 80 pounds, they're just wouldn't fit mm-hmm. as well there. Right. And so one of the things, and again, why the hair sheep, uh, pop popularity has continued to, to grow and to grow and to grow, uh, obviously as you see in Texas, but truthfully in the Southern part, and it's expanding in lots of places is that they can do so on limited input. And those, you know, hair sheep lambs, uh, just in generalization, uh, are done somewhere between, you know, 75 to 100 pounds. And those that are, you know, truthfully on the non-traditional market, most would say we don't want to go over 80 pounds, okay? And so if we can provide something that puts a little bit more muscle on that frame at 80 pounds, then those are the ones that get the premiums, in my personal opinion. And you have to be careful as you describe, you know, and again, it's the largest and most challenging word to quantify is yeah. is quality, um, but it's a, it's a different target. And a lot of those lambs are not being cut up into, you know, retail cuts. They're being harvested and cooked as a whole yep, lamb yep. carcass, um, in which case that carcass will be 25 to, you know, 30 pounds of uh, of a carcass and you're going to have a a large party and it's going to be a, it's going to be a big time and there's going to be a lot of lamb consumed. Um, and I guess I would say that to me, it's more about, again, the, the muscularity that you can fit on that carcass. And so if you have a smaller framed animal that, uh, has a little bit more muscle, what I've seen is those are ones that can kind of push that needle and get the extra premiums either when offered at a large market, like, uh, in San Angelo, um, or, you know, as we move out to New Holland or into Ohio or wherever those markets are, those are the ones that kind of push and get that extra kind of uh, marketability to them. And so hair sheep, hair sheep cross kind of fit that, you know, from a, a wool sheep standpoint. Man, if I was doing this, again, I shouldn't have breed allegiance or loyalties, but, man, I'd sure want a Chevy or a Southdown or a powered up sheep and just make them to 80 pounds yeah. as quickly as you can. So I know you've been involved in a number of, of research projects, and I'd like to, to give you an opportunity to explain some, some of your uh, findings there. First of all, can you outline for us what uh, you found with the RAM versus weather study and, and kind of your motivation behind conducting that research? Thanks. Uh, for those that know me, um, you know, know and love my father as well. And my father, uh, uh, he, he uh, on a kitchen table said, you know, there's, this is interesting because uh, when we think about it from Rams uh, in the fall here in October, uh, is that Rams will take a discount, Jake, okay? And so um, in the current marketplace, because there's enough lambs, and when it's the spring and it's Easter, uh, you know what? Rams don't get a discount. And so I have to give Dad, um, you know, at least the idea in terms of cred- credibility of the project because, you know, one of those is correct. Either, either Ram flavor has an impact right. um, or it doesn't. All right, and so it either should get discounted or it shouldn't. Uh, and so we took rams and weathers uh, from the same contemporary group, and it started out um, certainly very similar and, and kept, again, half of them intact and half of them castrated. And we had a lightweight group 
a medium weight group and then um, a heavy weight group, okay? And so and just in big generalizations, again, I don't want to go into that and um, very much or we if people want to ask, they can. Um, but the lightweight uh, group, the lightweight weathers um, from an overall sensory standpoint were the winners, okay? But it was close. Um, when we came to the medium, uh, they were very similar. And so, uh, but big picture, our light, weight and our medium weight now i would say from our medium weight on dorset lambs was about 145 pounds for our rams and 130 pounds for our weathers okay and so i think jake you would say you know what that's a medium weight dorset okay right at about two tenths 25 hundredths um those lambs uh, were fine had the same eating quality and same eating experience when we took the rams up to 175 180 and then there were uh, contemporary weathers were about 155. You know, those were farther than those moderate-framed dorsets needed to be, is that the rams were mature, okay? And the rams had met puberty, and there was an increase in terms of lamb flavor and increase in terms of intensity of flavor of the rams. And so what I like to think about it is that if we take those rams to 145 pounds, um, I have 15 pounds of free live weight okay we didn't do anything else other than kept the testosterone between their legs um and those are very similar if you decide to take rams to past and farther than pubertal uh, maturity then there will be an increase in terms of flavor intensity but no one ever asked to do that we're not i'm not advocating to take them to 200 pounds as intact males i'm saying that if you take them to a logical 130 140 uh you are still providing a very very high quality product and potentially at a cheaper cost again okay and i know you've also looked at some differences between fresh and frozen product is that right Thanks. Hopefully our research program at North Dakota State University and the University of Minnesota is, uh, is applied research on things that are, are important and, and uh, are impactful for our industry. And so we looked at fresh and frozen. And what we did is we took from uh, the same or from 12 carcasses and we cut those uh, down the line, okay, longitudinally, um, and then put one side of the kept the leg and then the loin uh, and put those uh, in the freezer, and only for two weeks. And so this isn't a long aging project. This wasn't what we were focusing. And then kept the other side um, fresh to see if there was differences in terms of palatability, if there was difference in terms of oxidation, uh, and looking at at the overall portion that individuals consumed. Okay. And so we had loin chop, or we had loins, and then we also had. Um, legs okay and so that we would look at and again there was not a particular difference in terms of uh, flavor at all in terms of oxidation or challenges from that of the fresh versus the frozen what we did see challenges in is in terms of juiciness okay and so when you freeze those um, what that does is rupture some of the muscle cells and so potentially some of those that have been frozen um, when you cook those uh, they could be not quite as um, juicy but on an overall like and i'll keep this simple for us is that the loins uh, we determined that it would be best to keep fresh uh, if that was a possibility to keep those loins fresh uh, would give us the best chance at a high-quality eating satisfaction. But the legs, um, we found no differences. Um, We found no differences in uh, the oxidation of flavor or the 
the juiciness or the overall liking. And so big picture then, uh, maybe it, it justifies us uh, getting a lot of legs accomplished and in the um, freezers for Easter and giving us a heads up and keeping those loin chops uh, through the system and on the grill. But great, great opportunity and working with a tremendous amount of great colleagues to say that frozen lamb can and is an option for our industry, at least on certainly some of our cuts. So is there an area of lamb quality research that you think we need to explore further uh, from a scientific standpoint? Well, I think uh, one of the things that I've been in contact with with the American Sheep Industry Association uh, right now is looking at and potentially refining our USDA lamb grading standards. And so we talked about that just uh, at the big initial part of our conversation here, Jake. And I think that if there's things that we can do that represent our industry better right now and sort those to a preferred cutability and eating satisfaction, then that's where we kind of need to look right now. And so whether that's based on age, based on, like I said, of, of intact um, um, animals or whether that's in terms of just identifying how can we be able to provide the best and most consistent eating opportunities for our consumers, uh, that's the most important thing. So consistency is extremely important. Like I said, uh, whether we believe it or not, McDonald's is high quality. We know what we're going to get, and it's and we know what the value proposition is. We have a huge value proposition when people decide to purchase lamb and put it into their either grocery cart or their freezer or their frying pan or their grill. Um, and so the expectations are high, and that's one of the things that's so exciting for me is coming from a sheep background uh, in uh, in South Dakota and now hopefully at least providing some research for our our supply chain and and looking for answers that we can improve the consistency and improve the value, the profitability, and the eating satisfaction along the way. And so I challenge everyone to think, again, with the end in mind, okay? And so begin with the end in mind on the decisions that we make because from a production standpoint, uh, we make decisions that, that impact uh, what that carcass value is. And so making a... Um, production and breeding decisions and feeding those right and harvesting them at a compositionally appropriate endpoint helps to get us where we need to be and provides flexibility and value and profitability and consumer uh, confidence for the whole game. Thanks so much. Yeah. So philosophically though, you know, do you believe that uh, the American sheep producer should be more focused uh, on genetic selection and, and for a, a better end product? Thanks. So I think that we should use all of our tools, Jake. And so when we look at the genetic selection, uh, one of those things would be potentially looking at our NSIP data on Carcass Plus. And so if you were choosing a terminal sire, uh, choose those with an improvement on post weaning weight, on eye muscle depth, and hopefully decreasing if that's the plan on um, on the back fat, but that isn't always the plan either. But again, we can be able to identify it and point us in the right direction in terms of muscularity per animal uh, of how it's made. But then from a management standpoint, if we get them harvested at the right time, then we provide flexibility and profitability for the whole chain. All right. I've got one more fun question for you. Best lamb dish you've ever had. 
Awesome. Well, th- thanks so much. You know, this was this is a fun one, and um, you know, I think the best lamb dish. I'm going to take the the easy way out. The best lamb dish is the last one. How's yeah. that? That's a, so, that's a great response. I like that. Right. Um, but, uh, but big picture, um, I would say that there are, are, are a tremendous amount of opportunities. And I guess the, the best one that, that rings the most is also probably the shiniest one. Um, and so if you do the rack just right, okay. And you go salt, pepper, um, garlic and rosemary, and then you grill that to a rare and then cut it up into the lollipops. Yeah. I really don't know how to beat that. So, yeah. Um, the big picture, keep uh, the meat thermometer close and keep it to rare to medium rare. And uh, I'm a big fan of garlic and rosemary. Well, we have some holidays coming up. Uh, so do you have any advice for cut selection uh, out of the retail case for anyone who maybe isn't as confident about buying lamb? <laughs> also, th- thanks, Jake. And so um, I-, I live, my- and my wife will echo this, uh, Travis lives his life uh every day like it's chopped okay so um megan has no idea what what is going to get cooked or why it's going to get cooked or, or why it's going to mesh together but uh i'm at like 99 percent uh acceptance rate okay at least at home awesome. so so i don't like to follow anything uh of any of the rules and i think that's what makes you know the you know the younger generation excited is that you know pick something different and so you wanted a go-to you know there's lots of go-to's that that people can use of course at least here at the end of october in north dakota uh it becomes a little brisker so this isn't barbecue season anymore um but we're just i guess time of year in texas where we can actually go outside so that's that's right that's right so um i would i would challenge i would challenge people on two things okay now as you dig on it is to to see if you can get and it becomes accessibility i would challenge individuals to get a leg roast and if they could get it customized get it smaller you know get it like a three pound um leg roast and then be able to put that in the oven and use the spices that you want i'm going to actually give another shout out and follow like the american lamb boards kind of facebook page because they then offer like recipes and they also offer um sometimes like spice blends and so pick the recipe that that looks fun to you uh and and to balance that out and then second level stuff when they're really feeling like they want to get on the edge uh is is use shanks and then see if you can braise it and put it in the oven for three hours, four hours, throw red wine with it and the garlic and the rosemary. And, you know, the, the fun thing about that, if you, that now that's second level cooking. All right. We've already got past the barbecue. Now we've moved from the leg. Now we're trying to move to the shank. So uh, that is not the answer to the question that you wanted of what is the go-to, but I totally think that's the excitement of lamb. If people wanted to do, like I said, sloppy joes and pork chops, they'd do that. So be creative Feed your adventurous side. And Jake, one of the um, questions that I had on my prelims, and I know that you know you had at least got to go through that from a PhD standpoint, is uh, uh, I, I recall this vividly. It said, what is the potential caption or what could be a promo line? And so my promo line for American Lamb is excite your palate, okay? And nice. so do something different, excite your palate. Um, and and uh, and live the dream. So um, we have that opportunity. And again, big picture that maybe I could provide some optimism for here at the end 
is that when we think about it from the American sheep industry, is that we think that we are raising sheep. Just recall that you are raising lamb as well and make that connection. And what also makes me very, very happy is that we provide um, life experiences because high quality, good lamb is absolutely a life experience. And that that's the power of food. Right. I mean, I was going to ask you here to, to finish things off, to, to give us a take-home message, but I don't, I don't know how much better it can get. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's just fine. You know, excite your palate yeah. and, uh, and just remember that we are part of the food supply chain and we provide life experiences. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, that brings us uh, to the end of our time. Uh, but, but again, thank you so much for, for taking uh, some time out of your day to impart some wisdom and, and to discuss your research findings uh, with our listeners. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. So we are fortunate to have a a growing audience for this podcast, and we hope to keep up the momentum uh, as we try and reach all corners of the sheep industry, bridging the gap between research and application. And so as always, I'll ask you uh, to please share this recording on your social media pages, if you so wish, or with anyone that you might see fit. But until next time, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and... That smile on the face of those who consume our products may just be the most important key to the sustainability of our livelihoods. Have a good day.